This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to the Free Expression podcast from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, an interview with the man who has a good claim to the title of the most influential capitalist in the world, but a man who has become in recent years, especially for conservatives, something of a controversial figure. Larry Fink is the co-founder and chief executive of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company. The company Fink founded 35 years ago now invests more than $9 trillion of customer funds, and it has major stakes in most of America's biggest companies, as well as many, many more businesses around the world. But in the last few years, Fink and BlackRock have been at the center of a roiling debate about the nature of modern capitalism and the right role of business in society. Critics accuse him of using the powerful leverage his control of so many assets gives BlackRock to coerce companies into pursuing what they call political objectives instead of simply seeking the best and highest financial returns for his investors. Fink's been a leading proponent of ESG investing, the approach that places high value on the pursuit of environmental, social, and governance objectives in investing decisions. Now, he's always claimed that there's no contradiction between pursuing those goals and achieving the best returns. But in the last few years, it's striking that ESG funds have significantly underperformed the overall market. In the last year, a number of Republican-controlled states have announced that they're pulling their investments out of BlackRock funds. So I sat down this week with Larry Fink to talk about all these issues and ESG and others, but also to get a wider sense of how he sees the U.S. economy and business in this turbulent and difficult time, and to get his broader thoughts on the health of American society and culture more generally. Larry, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Jerry, it's great to be here. Lots to talk about. Obviously, I want to talk to you about the uh, ESG, the three most interesting letters in investing for many people at the moment, both investing in politics and lots of other things. I want to talk about the state of the economy and the state of our country generally. But let's start, if we may, just right up to date, very topically with the news. Obviously, we had this horrendous Hamas attack on Israel 10 days ago, and we've seen the response here in the United States. One of the things we've seen, Larry, is a lot of business leaders very unhappy with what they've seen on university campuses, Mm. what they've Mm. seen generally in the country, perhaps, with some of these anti-Semitic demonstrations, particularly what they've seen on university campuses. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of these universities, elite universities, depend on alumni donations. And they are University of Pennsylvania, seen at Harvard, seen at Yale, others. Many people are outraged by this, threatening to pull their donations. You know, you've been very much involved in this whole issue at sort of at the nexus of culture and economics and politics and investing. As you look at that, I don't know whether you have thoughts about your own uh, alma mater, but what do you think as you look at that and you mm-hmm. see what's going on on university campuses and you see the reaction of many of people you know very well in the financial sector in particular? I think we need to start off with the context. I mean, what we saw, what we read, what we heard are horrifying events. Um, and it has a real reflection to the Jewish community, to the Holocaust, but it has reflections with all the society of what we witnessed with 1,400 people uh, being murdered by terrorists. Terrorism is not something that you should support. The plight of the Palestinian people is one thing, but with an event like this, we we need to elevate humanity. 
I spoke about it immediately within our firm. I posted my horror, my fear, what's going on, the rise of hatred in the world. I spoke to our employees yesterday at a town hall on how I want every BlackRock employee to lift their humanity and think about how can you have a more purposeful life in terms of trying to bring more hope back into the world. Uh, what we're witnessing on campus, in my mind, is, is neglecting humanity, and it, it is endorsing bigotry and hatred. I think this is the lapse of society. Your book writes about a lot of lapses of society on trust, and here's a good example. There's not a right or wrong here. This is a wrong. And, you know, we're seeing elements of society who are speaking against Israel in this event. Um, but they're speaking against humanity and what a life is meant to be. We're supposed to be lifting humans' lives. We're supposed to find ways of making better uses of our, our responsibilities as leaders of companies. And so I'm very upset at what we're witnessing in these campuses. Uh, the campuses that I'm engaged in and involved, like at NYU and UCLA, at NYU, I could tell you loudly, we spoke out against it immediately. Right, when the law school students came out in particular. Yeah. But at the medical school, uh, we're not getting enough attention. The medical school, we have 400 doctors who want to fly to Israel and the area to provide free medical help, and in one day we raised from the trustees money to fly them and to house them while they're doing that. So what we're trying to do uh, in our own small ways is trying to find ways of creating solutions, trying to you know modify the problems and try to resolve some of it. At BlackRock, we hire about 570 young people every year worldwide, and we do an extensive background check on everybody, and if we have if we have noticed in some people's backgrounds that they support hatred and they support what I would call not humanitarian foundational issues, they probably would not ever be hired at BlackRock. I can't say specifically yeah. they won't, but they, they shouldn't be hired at BlackRock. Tell me you support Bill Ackman, who came out and said, you know, we want to know the names of these people in particular at Harvard, but other institutions declaring their support for Hamas because we don't want to hire them. Do you take that view too? I, I mean, I think that's more of an extreme position. To me, I don't want to create another um, lynching right. of other people. Okay, okay, hopefully these young people realize they did something wrong. And in many cases, I think that's what we're seeing some evidence. Some people are not. They're not recanting what they did, but they are adults. I mean, yeah, I, let, let's be clear. They're not young kids. Yeah. They're responsible for their actions. And one thing that I really believe in in, in our society, you are responsible for your actions. Some of those university presidents, Harvard president was out there last week talking about the importance of free speech, that actually, you know, yes, of course, we condemn these terrible acts, but of course, we also defend free speech. I mean, it's a bit of an irony there, isn't it, given what we've seen on some of these campuses, particularly Harvard, which I think got the lowest marks in a survey of free speech on campus. You know, it seems that you're free to be able to support an organization that murders and rapes and slaughters people, but you're apparently not free to use the wrong pronoun. I think you said it clearly, Jerry. I agree with you. I mean, look, I'm not an expert on how we define free speech, but I think you framed it very clearly. And I do believe this is some of the problems of the progressives, especially in academia. Um, they have promoted their kind of free speech and not what I would call a consistent 
element of free speech. And and this is the debate we all have in society. What do we define free speech? And let's be clear, the media plays that role too. You know, and I think every publisher has to go through that process of what is the definition of proper reporting versus improper reporting. So I'm not an expert on this, but I'm horrified of some of the responses by these university presidents. And if they're going to support free speech, then it has to be consistent. If, if they're only their definition of free speech, I have a real problem with that. And, and so you can't be outspoken on some things and then hiding from other things. And I think what is being revealed is the inconsistency of those views. Let's move on to something on which I know you are an expert. Indeed, I think it's probably fair to say that, that the man, the person, the human being most identified, and that's it's the topic of ESG, environmental social governance. Um, now, I know you've said recently that you don't really want to talk about ESG anymore. At one point, you said earlier this summer, you're actually ashamed of some of the language around ESG. But I must ask you, it's an obvious question. You have been very much identified with this, and yet it is leading to great political controversy yeah. now. You've seen your, you know, the target of disinvestment by certain red states in particular uh, in the country. You've been criticized by presidential candidates and other. And a lot of people do feel, to put it bluntly, that the pursuit of ESG, the pursuit of those goals that are not specifically about getting the highest possible returns for investors, that's the politicization of finance, the politicization of business. It's pursuing non-financial goals you know, in pursuit of some political agenda. Do you think that whatever you think of that particular accusation, that maybe this sort of ESG enthusiasm that we had from a lot of businesses over the last few, do you think it went too far? Well, let's step back and talk about me and BlackRock related to that. We're a 35-year-old company. We're responsible for $9.1 trillion of other people's money. In the last 12 months, we were awarded over $300 billion. Everything we do is on behalf of our clients, and everything we do is with the purpose of financial returns. There is not one thing we have ever done, whether it's ESG or any other issue, is in the pursuit of financial return. That is our fiduciary responsibility, and we live that every day. And so the notion that we're not a fiduciary will look at the response of our clients awarding us $300 billion over the last 12 months. $9.1 trillion. So the results of our financial performance really speaks loudly that we are actually a very good investment firm seeking financial returns. But I do write about some of the long-term issues that we have to be focused on. The reason why I backtracked from the term ESG, because it means something to every different person. It's almost so amorphous that you can't put your hands around it. Well, you say that, but there are actually, you know, there are very clear you know, there are indexes, you can go, you know, there are, there, there are these these things are attempted to be quantified. So, it, you know, it's a clear focus of a lot of people's investing, isn't it? And it's not something you can Many completely Many clients of ours are choosing to invest in investment strategies that are ESG-focused or sustainability-focused. I would say most of the funds, when you speak about it, are more in the terms of environmental. Yeah. And we just did a survey a few months back where 56% of our global investors are going to put more and more investments in decarbonization. And in fact, over 50% of our clients said this is their number one priority of the people who voted of the 56%. So the reality is more and more investors are looking to find ways of decarbonizing investing, whether that is because of the IRA in the United States or other areas where they think you're going to get financial return. Most investors look at it as a good long-term 
financial return. And our job is to provide clients different choices, different investment styles, different ideas. And you're correctly in framing that there are some politicians who created this. In my mind, they were the ones who politicized it. It is just an investment style that we don't make the decision where clients put the money. All $9.1 trillion is our client's choice. Even our investors who invest in ETFs and mutual funds, the individual investor, we don't work with any one individual investor. We work with financial advisors, and they choose to invest at BlackRock because we have the best returns in some categories or something like that. So this has been way taken out of proportion. But it's true, isn't it, though, that you, you have, again, $9 trillion um, yes. assets under management. Yes. You are a big shareholder yes. in many of America's largest companies, in many in the companies world. around the world, yeah. thousands of companies around the world. Right. And it's true, isn't it, that you do use that power, sometimes with board seats or proxy votes or whatever. You use that power to coerce or to at least put it to, to incentivize companies I, I to pursue particular, but you don't do that. Well, I'm not involved in corporate stewardship at all. Zero. I'm not involved at all. But BlackRock does not do coercion. What we are trying to be informed for financial gain. Okay. We have the largest financial uh, corporate stewardship team in the world. Our job is to be engaged with companies, understand what they, how they're moving forward. There was one area where you could say we were more, I would say, vocal. And that was we asked clients to publicly report on scope one and two. Explain what that is. Sorry, please. Just so there, there are three different measures of your carbon footprint. Yep. And scope three is all your vendors and all your clients and all that stuff. We have been hostily against that. The SEC is trying to pose that as a, mm -hmm. as a platform. Basically, scope one and two is reporting your own carbon footprint. Over 50% of our assets we manage are retirement assets, 30-year obligations. All that. I want to know what every company, how they're navigating this transition. I don't believe the transition is going to happen anytime soon, but it, it is going to have to happen over the next 30, 40 years. I want to see how they're moving forward in terms of disclosure. And quite frankly, now, 80% of most companies now voluntarily report their disclosure. And that is a good example now, Jerry, why in the last two years, our voting with management has been so much in favor of what they're doing. And in fact, we voted against almost most of the proposals that, quote unquote, were environmental mm -hmm. last year. And the reason why, and I think you'll appreciate this, and is the SEC changed the standards mm. to what can be included in a proxy conference, you know, vote. And most of it is non-economic, and we vote against it. And even like in directors, we vote, you know, close to 90% every year in favor of what management and their directors. And in most cases, when we voted against a director, they're overboarded or governance. We have a view that if you're on more than four boards, it's a little too much, and you're probably not giving the proper time. But so you're saying you don't use those votes or the, you know, the positions of share board directors to particularly to promote and you haven't done that to promote other than you say maybe disclosure, disclosure. other than disclosure you don't so absolutely so decarbonization you're not encouraging companies through your significant stakehold holding in those companies to pursue kind of decar particular decarbonization so we own 385 billion dollars in energy companies we're the largest owner of energy companies mm. we're working with every energy company in the world and working with them on their business but also working with them in new properties. I believe the energy companies, and I said this in my letters, are going to be part of the solution because they own all the geology True. for 
sequestration. I'm a huge believer in sequestration as one of the mechanisms to really improve the world. I think we're going to be using hydrocarbons way beyond 20 or 30 years from now because I don't see at this time that we're going to be able to create the technologies to have a competitive, you know, decarbonized world so it's economic compared to hydrocarbons. I mean, let's be clear. Hydrocarbons are really cheap. They're very plentiful. And so as a result of that, you know, we need to make sure that we have economic prosperity. We need to make sure that families have the opportunity to grow and and have a bright future. We have to make sure that the emerging world has a future. And so we are not going to decarbonize unless we have an economic alternative. This is why we are aggressive, though, in trying to invest in new startups investing in companies who are focusing on ways of bringing down the cost of decarbonization, whether that is in hydrogen, whether that is in air capture or sequestration, biofuels. So, I mean, a lot of people say, listening to that and say, you know, that all, that's absolutely fine. And it's also fine, as you said, you know, right at the start, that there are a lot of companies that want, this is what a lot of investors rather want to do. They want their money to go towards causes. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's causes, but some of them actually believe it economically over the next 30 years, that's going to be the best strategy. Now, in the last but three lot, years... But some, don't, but some don't. Is it right that those people who invest in 401ks that are not particularly green, not particularly enthusiastic about this, seeing their funds, their pension funds sure. going into investments, that actually, particularly in the last few years, have produced a lower return than, than the market overall because you're pursuing those particular objectives. No, but those people don't have to invest in those products. I mean, we offer choice. So we are working with every company, every client. What would you like to do? We're working with the financial advisors across the world to provide choice to our clients. And I believe that's what we do really well. If you want to invest in hydrocarbons, we will select the best hydrocarbon companies in the world for you. If you want to invest in a more decarbonized portfolio, we're going to try to find the best economic portfolio that will achieve your financial goal. So BlackRock does not use, again, any of its power, its influence to pursue, even because I mean, you just told me that, that you think decarbonization is, is you know, is long term, transitioning to the green economy, as it's called, you know, is important for the world, is important for business. Yes. But you don't, even though you believe that, you don't think that BlackRock is trying to achieve that outcome through its deployment of, of its capital. It's not our fiduciary responsibility. Our fiduciary responsibility is to provide research, and we have research, and we believe through research that that's going to be a pathway of making excess returns over the next 30 years. We also have research that's showing that hydrocarbons are going to be a part of the economic organization of the world for many years ahead, too. And this is why, even when I'm accused by some far-right people of divestiture, we have never said one time ever that we would divest. In fact, in the last few years, we've been awarded more business from different energy companies than almost anybody. I mean, this is public. We can talk about it. We were even awarded Chevron's entire DC plan in the last year. We work with these companies, for these companies. We're a fiduciary to every one of these people. So if you came to us and said, I don't well, I want to be rid of hydrocarbons in my portfolio, we'll come up with a portfolio for you. But if I said, I believe that these companies, you know, the technology that they have, I believe the geopolitical environment we're in means it's dangerous for us to be moving away from hydrocarbons. And we've seen come of some of the implications of that in Europe. That's fine. I can do that through BlackRock too. And I believe that too. Yeah, yeah. I believe geopolitical issues are going to present bigger and bigger thresholds for all this. But this is why I'm hopeful. And I am hopeful that we are going to come up with new technologies to make the green transition more economic. And I do believe that will be great. Now, I was just traveling around the world. Yeah. And I could tell you, countries that are reliant on the importation of energy. Every one of the countries are rapidly trying to find ways to decarbonize faster. 
And that's going to be the issue. You framed it very well, Jerry, but the, the reality is, you know, spending time with the Kishida government last week. In Japan. Yeah. In yeah. Japan. Their policies are all, how do we decarbonize? Because the amount of money they're spending for importation of energy is extraordinary. When you go to Germany, we all know what's going on there and, and their need. And so the reality is there's no political debate there. The political debate in these countries, and I, I want to make sure that everybody understands it, is we're going to find ways to rapidly decarbonize but we can't do it because of the, it's still economically unpalatable. Right, but we've seen what's happened in Europe, in particular in the last year and a half, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what happened to Correct. energy prices and the, and the energy crisis that that's produced there. You don't think that maybe the accelerated drive towards decarbonization, which BlackRock, to be fair, I think as an investor, has been very much a part of in the front of. Yes. You don't think that that has helped to create the conditions that Europe now finds itself in, where it realizes it's tried to decarbonize too rapidly. Rishi Sunak in Britain is now talking about you yep. know, easing some of those measures that they had to get to its net zero target. The German government is, you know, is, is reviving coal they power. They have to, because power is more important than your strategy. Okay, keeping the lights on. And in the UK, they weren't going to ever meet those targets they ever did. So, they actually rolled back to some more sensibility, in my opinion. But let me be clear, in Europe today, I cannot win a piece of business in Europe today unless I have some lens on decarbonization. So politically, it's changing and evolving, and they probably have moved much further than any place in the world. From the investor side right now, they are not turning the back. But at the same time, I'm pleased to say Royal Dutch Shell, which was an underperformer until this year, has now reached its all-time high. I mean, oil prices, I mean, I yeah, assume no, that's, but all know, of that. that's but, thanks to the Russian invasion of yeah, the oil prices. But it actually took a little longer with them than the price improvement with Exxon. One final question on yeah. this general topic, which is DEI. Now, we talk about, yeah. everybody focuses on the E part of yeah, ESG, environmental, of e. S, social, people don't focus yeah. much on. But within that, I would include some of these sort of DEI, which has become a big thing, diversity, yep. equity, and inclusion in the last yep. couple of years. It is true, though, isn't it, that also you do use your leverage in some of these companies to pursue diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Is that not right in terms so, of you know, women representation on the board? or yeah, yeah, Yes. Yeah. So let's frame it. We're invested in tens of thousands of companies. Last year, out of tens of thousands of companies, there was 18 proxy votes on DEI. Okay, so let's understand the framework. Yeah. It's a framework of the 10,000 companies. It's minuscule. Okay. And we're framing it on a fraction of the overall population of companies. So I, I just want to give that context. It's small. It's really not the major conversation. But you do, nonetheless. So let me carry on. Last year, there were 18 DEI proposals. 18. BlackRock voted against 16 of them. They were proposals that they, they, would they promote were, they were, these DEI initiatives, essentially. I mean, you Well, know. that's what they were proposing. We thought they were uneconomic. Okay. Or, or wasn't proper. Uh, once again, everything we do is through the lens of how can we earn a high economic return on behalf of our clients. We have a belief that diversity is important. Diversity of mind and all forms of diversity. We do have, we're asking companies, you know, how are you thinking about diversity of your board? And we also believe that you should have some female representation on boards. I think on a board, we have a floor of two women and the average board size is 12. I don't think in society that's a, a big. I mean, ask. lots of people would agree with that and absolutely agree with the you know the, the importance of elevating women. But again, is that's not really pursuing shareholder value? Is if you, it? I mean, I don't agree with that. If you believe that diversity of mind, diversity of talent can have the worst thing we could see in corporations, we see this all too often in boards is groupthink. 
Okay, there's a lot of statistical evidence and scientific evidence that diversity of mind will allow a company to have a little more diversity, diverse conversations, not, not, yeah. and more fulsome conversations. Even your own company's board has two or three women representatives. So I don't think what we're asking is that dramatic. And in fact, if I'm criticized, why only two by yeah. most people? Not from the Wall Street Journal editorial page, I can say that. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock. We're talking not just about ESG, but about the wider economic and political challenges the United States faces right now. Stay with us. This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index, online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. We're back and I'm talking with Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management firm. We're talking not just about ESG, but about the broader economic and political challenges we face right now. Let's talk about economics, obviously, immediately. We're seeing this extraordinary run-up in interest rates in the last year and a half, particularly in the last recently, with long-term interest rates, with uh, bond yields running up still higher today. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon, and I think the 10-year Treasury is at 5%, you know, very close to 5%. I think 490. 5%. What's your view on all, and, and obviously that's had implications for equities and there's question marks about whether the Fed will raise rates again and maybe that might lead to even higher rates. What's your overall view? I mentioned in particular on this run-up in long-term interest rates. Is this kind of a structural change in the economy that represents a sort of a reversion to kind of pre, let's say, you know, pre-financial crisis or pre-2000 normality? We're going to back to normal interest rates after this long, long period of you know, zero interest rates and quantitative easing. Is this a structural change or is this kind of an overreaction that some people would say to bad inflation numbers? Inflation is going to come down and we can expect to, you know, to go back to where we were just a couple of years ago. So it is my opinion, I've been pretty vocal about this for the last year. I think we have much more structural embedded inflation and much of it is because of policy. When you have conversations now politically or even economically around the world, you hear the phrase national security constantly. Mm. I'm just, this is one framework, national security with chips or food or energy, on and on and on. And so we are creating more fragmentation from efficient supply chains to resilient supply chains. We are focusing on our dependencies of China, and we're trying to reduce those dependencies. And through that process, then, we're moving supply chains at what cost? Okay, when you throw in the issue of dependencies and national security, those supersede, I would say, the foundations of deflation or inflation. And I believe those societal issues are superseding the quest of low inflation. And so when you overlay our immigration policies, uh, the Trump administration changed our definition of legal immigration. And now six years later, we're down approximately 500,000 legal immigrants in the United States, so totaling 3 million legal immigrants over the last six years. That's inflationary, when you, especially when you have a 3.7% unemployment rate. So I would say so much of our policies have evolved 
they may be the right policies. I'm not trying to editorialize the quality of the proposals, but they have more inflationary implications. So we have that. We had huge pools of money from during the COVID period of time of how much excess money we gave out as a country. Getting back to the conversation we had before, decarbonizing the economy is very inflationary. So you have that. And then you have, we've witnessed over the last five years, a pretty big decline in productivity. And that is inflationary. So it is my view that inflation is much more structural today than ever before. And let's be clear. So we're complaining about higher rates. The one thing that America is the strongest in the world is our capital markets. We have the most resilient, strongest capital markets of any place in the world. We're the envy of the world. And we should be proud of how we develop these capital markets. And the Wall Street Journal has played a big role in talking about the evolution of the capital markets. We have a mortgage market unlike any other country in the world. Our mortgages are 30-year fixed. So with 95% of mortgages now that are 30-year fixed, you're not implicated by higher rates. So the transmission for the United States to bring down the economy is a harder task for this central bank. And at the same time, we have a central bank that is trying to bring down the economy and bring down the heat of inflation. And we have three massive stimulus packages. Okay, we have the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, and the IRA, totally, what, $970 billion? That's going to create a lot of public-funded jobs away from the private sector. That's inflationary. And so here we are, we have the central bank trying to arrest the economy. We have fiscal spending that's trying to increase the economy. And so we have divergent policies at this moment. And so all it means is higher rates for longer. And I think the Federal Reserve is going to pause in November because unless we have some resolution in Israel, I think they're going to tighten in December. So let's do one more tightening. I would not be surprised to see the 10-year rate between 5 and 5.5%. And I think it's going to require higher interest rates to bring down the economy. We thought for, or some people have thought anyway, for a long time that apparently the government could just go on spending well, these deficits. Let me just I'm not going to address that. Let's frame this. In 2000, the United States had an $8 trillion deficit. Yeah. Today, we have a $33 trillion deficit. $33 trillion debt, right? Debt. Yeah, 120% debt. of GDP. Something like but, that. So we raised the deficit in 23 years by $25 trillion. Mm. And the market is overwhelmed by the amount of financing. Now, if you overlay another big issue, and this is to me... When I'm a, if I, these are my nightmare scenarios. My nightmare scenario is there's one other dependency that we haven't talked about. One dependency was Europe and with Russian gas. Another dependency is the dependency of China for manufacturing and assembly, and that is being readdressed. The other big global dependency is the dependency on the U.S. dollar. And let me be clear: the world would like to find an alternative. And 40% of our deficit, so 40% of the 33 trillion dollar deficit is financed globally. We have the largest percent of debt that is being financed overseas. I mean, as bad as the deficits in Japan and Italy, and they're bigger as a percent of GDP, it's mostly all domestically yeah, financed. Yeah. And now, look at whether well, so aging Does that popul- represent a particular vulnerability for the U.S. or a particular strength that actually the U.S. is still the global investors' number one place to put their money? Or does it make us vulnerable to sudden shifts in sentiment? Yes to both. 
Okay, it is a reason why we can have deficits because we are the currency of choice. We're the currency of trade. So it does make us vulnerable. Could there be a scenario where we're playing that less of a role and then this is just so additive to the problem? But the bigger problem is right now, just let's talk about discretionary spending. With higher interest rates, the degree in which we are going to have flexibility for discretionary spending at the federal level is going to be even more and more limited. Does that mean entitlements have got to be addressed in some ways? Are you? Part I of hope that? so. You know, we believe we have to restructure Social Security. As a percent of GDP, we pay the highest amount of health care as any economy. So we have a lot of structural issues that really need to be addressed. This is why we need government back to work, but focus on the long term. And given the global climate, as we are, we're seeing these conflicts around the world the demand for defense spending is only going to grow, right? You can't imagine. And that's inflationary. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's inflationary. You mentioned, just on inflationary, because I must pick you up on this, and I don't want to keep going back to the EST stuff, but you did say, in the as you were describing the structural inflation that we have, you said decarbonization is inflationary. May I ask you, why, if it's inflationary as we see it is, yes. why is it in the interests of your investors to pursue decarbonization, who then see their savings eroded? So our investors are looking to find new technologies to bring down that cost. And this is why governments are creating like an IRA. We need to create the new technologies to bring down the cost. Now, I said if we are going to decarbonize tomorrow, it's very inflationary. It's at least 30 to 40 percent higher than and sometimes double the cost of hydrocarbons. And so the only way we're going to decarbonize the world is by new technologies. And so that's what I mean by it. And quite frankly, today, look, at it took 30 years for wind and solar to be competitive. And now wind and solar on an incremental kilowatt is cheaper than coal. And so let's be clear, the technology that has changed for wind and solar has done it. Now, the problem is, as you kind of inferred earlier, it does create another dependency with China. One of the things that you have been talking a lot about recently, and I'm interested to understand what's behind this, is... You're interested in cryptocurrency. I'd like your overall take on crypto. But as we look at this climate that we're in, as you say, structurally persistent inflation, terrible fiscal position, which isn't going to help there, yes. the global climate of, in all kinds of ways, all contributing to these inflation pressures. In your view, is crypto emerging as a possible alternative kind of hedge to, you know, people have typically looked at gold, perhaps in those circumstances, they've looked at the dollar. Is that part of what's driving interest in crypto and basically your interest in crypto or, or are there... Are there other, are there other factors? I, I, I look at it as a great alternative. I have met people in my travels. In one of the meetings I had, I met with this Afghani woman who is trying to empower women in Afghanistan. But you can't make payments to the banking systems because it's controlled by the Taliban. And she's providing payment using Bitcoin through crypto. I've met people in other countries where they're frightened of their government. They're frightened of the debasement of their currency. And they're using crypto as a hedge. Historically, we thought of gold as that key commodity. But crypto has caught the imagination of millions and millions of people. And I really do believe it, it's going to play a, a role. I mean, the design of Bitcoin is a pretty amazing design. It's been tested already. I mean, when you think about the FTX fiasco and all these things, these are just fraudulent companies. They created their own crypto coin. The beauty of Bitcoin, there's checks and balances all throughout it. These other exchanges were just fictitious exchanges and there was no checks and balances. I mean, that's the irony. The irony of, if you look at the beauty of what a Bitcoin is and what they're trying to do, maximum 21 million Bitcoins. I think right now there's like 12 million of them. That did, so there's not many more years left in, in mining them. And so there's a finite level of these. And if people value them as 
worth something and they have the confidence and you could say what's behind it, you know, but because of what's behind gold other than what it's used for jewelry. I mean, and I think we as human beings have found different things that we ascribe value to. I mean, you know, when you see a contemporary piece of art that's selling over a hundred million dollars and somebody is ascribing a value to that artist and it's trading. And I think that's what Bitcoin is. And I'm hearing more and more from different parties of the world where they want to diversify. So you're looking to provide uh, investment products for... We filed with the SEC, which I can't talk about it, a spot market Bitcoin ETF with the full transparency of what an ETF can be. And You're confident you're going to get that approved, those approvals? You know the regulatory atmosphere right now. Uh, if confident, I'd be a fool. <laughs> I mean, I think we have, we answered a lot of questions and I think I think there's a great demand for this. And look, the SEC has to play their role and their job in making sure that, you know, it's safe and sound. And But I, I think we created a safe and sound product. It's interesting you say that. And again, I'm, I'm not talking here about crypto or your particular Bitcoin product, but you, you just as an aside there said, you know what the regulatory environment is like right now. Is that something that concerns you? You're seeing a pretty aggressive antitrust uh, enforcement approach from the Biden administration. You know, arguably, you know, we, we still have, you know, obviously a very tight financial regulation. Do you think actually, if anything, that pendulum has swung too far in terms of the regulatory climate here in the U.S.? I believe the great foundation of capitalism is destruction and renewal. And one way of destruction is merging companies into bigger companies and making them better and stronger. So there's a balance. It appears to me that some of the behavior is more ideological than, and I'm a capitalist. And I was very happy that we saw the Microsoft merger with Activision because that made no sense to me. I mean, they're, they're almost, it's an adjacency. It was largely the British holding out on that, I think. It was, it, and yeah. they were just, yeah. Look, at the, Europe has big issues related to technology. They don't have many technology companies. But that raises another issue. Think about the ARM listing in the New York Stock Exchange. Right. That, to me, is another example of what's going on here. And the power of the United States and the power of our capital markets. When you think about the U.K., the UK, almost most of the defined benefit plans have been immunizing their pension funds. And immunization means you're locking in your liabilities and assets so you don't have to have the volatility in a balance sheet. Well, that just says the UK does not have that big pool of money for long-term equity, long-term assets. 30 years ago, the UK was a big exporter of capital. Right, right. They're going to have to be an importer of capital. Right. And to me, there's a good example in why we need a resilient, powerful capital markets. I want to get a sort of a broader, sort of higher altitude view of what's going on. You very kindly mentioned my book earlier on, and listeners will know about my book, American Breakdown, about the decline of trust in American institutions. I just want to get your thoughts on that. I mean, it is a striking phenomenon. Again, I, I don't need to rehearse all the things I've mentioned in my book, but the <laughs> decline of trust in, yeah. you know, in the permanent government, in the media, in universities, the sort of things we've talked about. about Corporations. Big, big business, absolutely. Yeah. Corporations in the financial sector, in technology, in public health and science. I mean, what's your sense of, I mean, how serious a problem this is? And more broadly, you know, by the way, we're recording this. Here we are, Tuesday afternoon, we're recording this. The House of Representatives is going through various votes, endless votes again for Speaker. It looks like, once again, right now, Jim Jordan hasn't got the votes for Speaker. It's all contributing, and then we look at the events in the world too, contributing to this wider sense of public fear, mistrust and fear, fear. Of, of what's going on. What's your sense of what's behind this? And most importantly, how do we repair it? Well, I start with a foundation that I'm an optimist. Building a company from zero with eight people in a room with no clients and 
to a company that has about a $100 billion market cap. We did it on optimism. And importantly, at BlackRock, too, because most of our assets are retirement, we have to give people hope. Because if you're not hopeful that in 20 or 30 years the outcome is better, you'll keep all your money in a bank account. And so... Even banks, (laughs) under the mattress, right? Or under Under the the mattress. But you're you're not going to invest for a 30-year outcome. Sure. And so I start with that. And there's no question in my mind, I've never seen more fear, more distrust. And fear is pervasive now, whether it's because of geopolitical issues, whether it's who do I listen to. And so I think this is a pervasive issue. I think it's a responsibility for the press, for business leaders to try to elevate hope again. And historically, you would have said leadership in government would provide hope. And right now, they're governing through fear, excoriation. They're not making long-term legislative to improve our future. Obviously, as you framed it, a lot of geopolitical issues that are creating more and more fear. This lack of trust is because it's the base of everything's life is now for fear. And it's fear because the institutions that gave people hope, whether it's government or media or life itself or corporations, we have more fear about that future. And I think the foundational issues more and more young people are considering now not having children. To me, these are one, incredible examples. If you think about our birth rates in the United States post-COVID today, our birth rates fell like two-tenths of a percent. Those are horrific numbers, and that is just a, a strong element of the fear that we are seeing. But the reason for optimism is, as you describe, exactly, you describe it very well, is, is, you know, America's incredible resilience based on optimism, right? America's been through many, many crises, arguably many, many worse crises, well, certainly the case of the Civil War, many, many worse crises yes. than we're facing now. But it does seem to require leadership. What do you think about the quality of our political institutions and the leadership of our political institutions right now? Are we equipped to find a way through these challenges? Well, at times it feels the answer is no, but I'm hopeful that we will find a way. I was in the UK and I spent time with both parties, the Conservative and Labour Party. And I'm very pleased to see how the Labour Party in the UK went from, I would say, an extremist party. A Marxist leader. Marxist leaders to uh, Keir Starmer has shown real strength as a moderate Labour Party. And so that actually has given me hope that the pendulum went so far there. I hope if you think about the UK, the UK was the one that started the high level of populism through the Brexit, and then the populism here led to Donald Trump being president. I hope the UK, well, we'll see what happens if Starmer gets elected in, let's say, a year from now, but I believe that's a measurement of hope. But let me just peel back another reason why I'm hopeful beyond political leadership and all that. I mean, we spend so much time talking about all these issues that are frightening, but the reality is, and this is why I'm a capitalist and why I believe in the future, we're developing more therapies that are extending life, whether it's a Zempec and all these different new applications that was used for one disease, and we're finding out it has profound impact on heart, kidney, stroke, obesity, diabetes. There is huge advancements now for dementia in terms of delaying the full onset of these horrific diseases. I am so bullish on what AI and robotics can do to improve productivity. I believe that is it is going to be through these new science we're going to be able to create more hope, more opportunity. I look at what ExxonMobil has done. Okay, They had two big acquisitions this year. Uh, they bought Denbury, and that is their movement towards sequestration, of the, building the pipes. I mean, I thought... I thought It was a tremendous uh, merger. They just announced a week ago buying Pioneer. 
And the reason why they believe Pioneer is going to be a great, successful investment, and I think your publication was very in favor of this, is the technological change in the extraction of energy out of the soil is 30% improved because we have better technology for imaging, knowing where the reservoirs are, but we have such incredible at our technology in drilling methods and to the degree of the depth of these drillings we could do. This is the technology that's transforming us. And this is American-built technologies. And so I actually think we're spending so much time on all the negatives, and whether it's the negatives from Washington, the negatives, all this. And I'm coming away now seeing more evidence to be bullish on our future than I've ever been, because I see what technology is doing. And like I said, energy extraction is a major reason to be more bullish on America, because we do have unconventional oil that is very accessible through this technology. Uh, the medicine advancements, all this is U.S.-based information technology. AI, we're going to be leading that. And robotics, we're not a leader in robotics. I mean, Japan, China, and Germany. But what we're going to be able to do with robots and now with AI and having better sensor technology, the dexterity, this is going to revolutionize the manufacturing platform. Now, let's be clear, that's going to create some fears because it's going to have some job removals and it's going to create new jobs. But we've seen over every cycle that more jobs are created than are lost if you have a resilient economy. And so, yes, I'm aware of all the problems the lack of trust, the fear, the polarization of America. But I'm a bigger believer in our capitalistic structure and the foundation of BlackRock and what we started and where we are today is a great example of that. And I do believe it is going to be technology that's going to drive America to new highs. Well, that's a very positive and hopeful and optimistic note on which to end, and I can't think of a better way to end it. Larry Fink of BlackRock, thank you very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much, indeed, for joining us. Please do join us again next week when we'll have another deep dive into the big issues shaping our world. Thank you. Have a great week, and goodbye. Goodbye. 